Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, two views on the aftermath of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Wall Street Journal reporter Aruna Vishwanatha outlines the federal investigations into the perpetrators. Then, Northeastern University terrorism expert Max Abrams discusses the pros and cons of a push for domestic terrorism legislation in the wake of the attack. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Aruna Vishwanatha, you've been covering the Justice Department for the Wall Street Journal and specifically writing a lot about the post-January 6th investigation into the Capitol riots. What have you been learning about the size and scope of this investigation? Federal authorities are saying it's the largest since 9-11. Yeah, that's right. This is just an incredibly fast-moving investigation that has already resulted in um, more than 150 arrests. And um, to see sort of the scope of this investigation in terms of hundreds of FBI agents across the country um, running down suspects and leads literally across the country um, to be able to pull all of these cases together in the three to four weeks it's been since the January 6th riot kind of shows you just how much they've been putting into this and sort of running nonstop 24 seven um, already five more than 500 subpoenas and search warrants and uh, just field offices across the country devoted to this uh, one investigation. And yeah, they do describe it um, sort of similar to what the FBI did post 9-11. And in that case, they had almost, you know, all their main suspects were dead. And so the number of people that they really had to investigate was was not the just the immense scope of subjects they have right now, 800 people that were in the Capitol and committed a crime automatically just by being uh, inside the Capitol when they were not supposed to be. So it really is, um, in some ways, an unprecedented investigation. We're going to show Michael Sherwin, who is acting U.S. attorney uh, for District of Columbia, on January 12th, mid-month, talking about the size of this investigation. This is not going to be solved overnight. It's not going to be solved within the coming weeks. It's not going to be solved within the coming months. This is going to be a long-term investigation, and rest assured, the Bureau, the Department of Justice, all the U.S. attorneys across the United States that are assisting these investigations, everyone is in for the long haul. So that being said, let's turn to the numbers that Steve referenced, and the numbers are going to geometrically increase. So As we sit here now, literally days after this event happened, we have already opened 170, more than 170 subject files, meaning these individuals have been identified as potential persons that committed crimes on the Capitol grounds, inside and outside. So of those 170 cases that have already been opened, and I anticipate that's going to grow to the hundreds in the next coming weeks, we've already charged over 70 cases. And again, that number I suspect is going to grow into the hundreds. And as you told us, the number has grown since then. Uh, But I'm wondering, and and you're reporting on the department, how is an investigation of this size and scope actually structured? Who's the lead? 
So um, as you have uh, the acting U.S. attorney uh, in Washington, Michael Sherwin, um, being sort of the face of the investigation, he it is his office that's essentially running this investigation. And they have um, dozens of prosecutors devoted to doing nothing but this investigation um, from the national security team, from the local crimes team um, across the office. They're engaged. And then they also have uh a lot of um, assistant U.S. attorneys from around the country involved when there are arrests in these other districts. Um, but the investigation is very much organized to be run out of Washington, and all of the cases are being filed in the district. And they've divided it, um, divided the investigation up into certain teams, and and they have um, an, a, a very experienced team focusing specifically on the um, conspiracy cases, on the sort of more complicated what kind of planning went into this. They're potentially looking at sedition charges that they might be able to bring against a few of these defendants. So you have one team kind of focused more on that. And then you have other teams that are looking at um, sort of the officer assaults, the assaults on the media um, uh, and, and things like that. And they've tried to hive it off into a couple of different um, subsets of investigations, but um, and 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 the pipe bombs, um, the two pipe bombs that were left at the RNC and the DNC the night before, um, that one is is sort of its own investigation too. Um, but they they are all really being run out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. They're being filed in Washington, and um, we expect that to uh, continue for the foreseeable future. At the senior levels, the Justice Department is undergoing a transition into the Biden White House. Will that have an impact in how the investigation is conducted? So we definitely expect the Biden administration to um, nominate a new U.S. attorney in Washington um, at some point. Um, Mike Sherwin is uh, what was um, put in that job by the Trump administration, but he wasn't technically a, a political appointee um, in the traditional sense because he is actually a career employee of the Justice Department and um, Attorney General Bill Barr had had um, put him in that job in an acting capacity. And so they could keep him there for some time um, while they nominate a new U.S. attorney and have that person confirmed by the Senate. Um, because this is such a broad investigation, they could also appoint a new U.S. attorney to focus on everything else that the office does because they do they are involved in a lot of other um, types of investigations and cases being in D.C. Um, and they could um, keep either Mr. Sherwin or somebody else um, as sort of the the point person to run the investigation outside of having the U.S. attorney handle it. Um, so there are different things that they can do. We do understand that they are looking to nominate a new U.S. attorney, but whether they'll have that person in charge of the investigation or um, Mr. Sherwin or somebody else, we're, we're not uh, sure of that yet. By uh, the end of January, you reported and you referenced this that the investigations had shifted gears into the conspiracy uh, bigger charges, more significant charges. Could you talk about what the implications are of a federal conspiracy charge for anyone who is alleged to have committed it? So the um, conspiracy charges that they have brought so far involve um, one set of conspiracy charges involve planning in advance of the um, of the breach of the Capitol. Um, they have a couple of members of a, a alleged members of this um, one of these militia groups called the Oath Keepers. Um, they're accusing them of coordinating beforehand, planning to bring um, weapons potentially or, or explosives or, or 
um, at least talked about bringing things to the Capitol and then worked together to try to breach the Capitol. Um, so that that's one set of charges that could and when you add conspiracy charges on top of these other federal charges, they could end up adding up to a substantial amount of jail time. You're talking 15, 20 year sentence possibilities. Um, and then there's another set of conspiracy charges involving some members of the Proud Boys, uh, another um, one of these groups, alleged members of the Proud Boys, where they were allegedly conspiring with each other to obstruct law enforcement during the course of the breach. And that, too, can add um uh, add, add years to a sentence um, involving charges of obstructing law enforcement and the other crimes that they already face. So it's it's sort of an escalation of the charges. They're obviously more complicated to prove in court, but they also bring potentially stiffer penalties. There's also been some su suggestion of pursuing sedition charges against some of the uh, alleged defendants. So w what does that imply? So sedition is a very serious charge. You're you're basically accused of of um, taking up arms almost against uh, against your government, and um, that is a very difficult charge to prove. The government does not use it very often, but in this case where um, they've already described some of these people as insurrectionists, um, it, it sort of meets the textbook definition of potentially what a sedition charge might look like. So they have uh, Justice Department officials have said from the outset that they were looking at these potential serious charges of sedition. And um, Mr. Sherwin has, has said at prior press conferences that he had set up a task force specifically to look at conspiracy and these seditious conspiracy kind of, of charges. And so if they were to, if they, they are definitely working towards that. And if they were to bring it, it would make sense that they would add on to the conspiracy charges that they've already brought. Um, but that is still a work in progress. We don't have those yet. We've uh, read that some of the people who are, have either turned themselves in to local authorities uh, and others have, on top of that, express, expressed regret for participating in uh, the riots on January 6th. What happens to people in those cases, either turning themselves in or expressing regret? So it is possible that some of these defendants end up uh, negotiating plea deals and plead to some of the charges that they face um, and uh, don't end up facing indictment or trial. But um, at this point, prosecutors are seem to be moving forward to indict everyone that they have arrested on these criminal complaints. Uh, it's sort of a procedural thing, but it, it, um, it, it sort of escalates the case and sets a clock that um, requires uh, them to enter a plea and then sets this clock towards trial. And so I think just given how many people there are and how robust some of the evidence is in terms of being captured on social media or posting themselves pictures of themselves um, in the Capitol doing the things that they're accused of doing, uh, I, I would expect to see some of these defendants um, plead out. And if they have information to share with law enforcement and cooperate fully, then they might end up getting some kind of uh, leniency um, in, in the charges that they ultimately have to plead to. In a, the January 26th story for the Wall Street Journal, you uh, cited that a former FBI special agent told you that the breach of the Capitol was giving the FBI a reason to investigate groups that had long been on their radar. Can you tell me more about that? That's right. So the FBI obviously has this has this sort of long and tortured history with um, you know, where does the First Amendment end and where does uh, potentially violent conduct um, begin? And so they, they're always been sort of reluctant to, um, uh, you know, go after 
groups that are like essentially uh, associated by political ideology and um, don't want to be viewed as uh, investigating things that are essentially protected by the First Amendment. And so what I think the January 6th riot has done is um, give them more reason to arrest people that say things about how they want to kill Nancy Pelosi or that they want to go kill um, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. And um, which maybe they would have let go in the past and not necessarily have immediately went to go charge them. Um, so it is definitely giving them more reason to investigate exactly what uh, some of these alleged groups are, are doing and where what they're doing might cross the line um, from First Amendment protected activity into actual threats of violence. Uh, and, and so it is it is definitely giving them more reason to do that. You referenced uh, the streaming on people's social media sites of what happened on January 6th. Um, could you talk a bit about your coverage of the role of technology in, aging, in aiding these investigations, the digital trails, the, uh, those involved left behind, uh, how the public got involved in it? What have you learned? So it, that part of it does seem somewhat unprecedented, too, just in that um, you had almost everyone in the Capitol recording it in some fashion, posting on Facebook about exactly what they were doing, streaming themselves on Facebook Live or TikTok. And so um, the FBI has talked about how they, they've had hundreds of thousands of pieces of uh, digital media to kind of wade through. And some of that is um, what's accessible publicly. Some of that is what friends and relatives um, and neighbors of some of these alleged rioters have found on their private Facebook feeds and private social media sites that they have then turned over. And um, so just this like vast um, repertoire of social media has and um, videos and uh, other communications has given the FBI um, so much information on which to um, use as a starting point for its investigation because these people were not really arrested in the inside the Capitol, they were let go, and, and many of them went back to their home countries, so uh, home states. And so the um, sort of breadth of evidence on social media has given them a lot of information to kind of work with as as an initial starting point. And then now they're also getting um, a lot of information from these subpoenas, grand jury subpoenas, and search warrants. And so now they're kind of building on top of all of that um, social media and digital evidence that they have, um, but in terms of the cases that they brought so far. So the vast majority of these cases seem to have been built on the social media that they could access publicly and what um, the, the friends uh, of these alleged rioters have turned over to the FBI. Uh, I wanted to learn a little bit more uh, about the federal courts and their role so far in the investigation. You mentioned grand juries. Do you know approximately how many grand juries have been impaneled around the country to look at these charges? It is just the one in DC and it has been set up exclusively to investigate the um, the Capitol riot. And so it's almost set up as as if you re remember back to the um, to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, he had his own grand jury in Washington. And this is um, somewhat comparable to that. It meets um, it's meeting twice a week to consider um, indictments and subpoenas and um, to work on this investigation. So it's all being channeled through this one grand jury, but it's a, a, a very active one as far as we can tell. Who serves on grand juries? 
Those are uh, grand jurors picked from the, the pool of eligible jurors uh, within Washington, D.C. So members of the public are this, a part of this panel, and they are very busy, I would seem, with the number of cases involved. And do they, what powers do they have? So they can issue subpoenas. Um, they, uh, they have to approve indictments. So prosecutors can file what are called criminal complaints, where they sort of get the... Um, get the allegations on paper, file it with the court, um, ask a judge to sign off saying that they believe they have probable cause to arrest this person. But um, the prosecutor then needs to present the evidence to a grand jury. And unless the grand jury returns an indictment, they can't actually proceed with the charges. So they have that power of being um, sort of the initial jury on is there enough here to proceed on any individual case. If someone is arrested uh, anywhere in the country other than Washington, D.C., do they appear before a local federal judge? The initial appearances have been before local judges, and a lot of the defendants, um, prosecutors have not asked for them to be detained, so they're, they appear before a judge and then they're released to maybe home confinement or um, just told that they need to keep appearing for their um, court appearances via Zoom. Um, some of the defendants, a small minority of the defendants, especially the ones who were more violent, the ones accused of um, conspiracy, have been, uh, prosecutors have asked for their detention. And in some instances, um, the local judges have granted it. In some instances, they have not. And then prosecutors have also appealed that to um, the chief judge in D.C., who has in several instances overruled the local judges and um, forced these defendants to be detained. And but all of these cases ultimately are being heard in Washington and um, the judges, uh, the defendants who have been detained in their local districts are then essentially being extradited to Washington, D.C. to um, face the proceedings uh, in Washington. Are there cases being heard by a th three judge panel? Is that correct? A, a panel of three magistrate judges that have been appointed? So there are. So Washington, D.C. only has three magistrate judges and essentially they have all been um, assigned to work on almost nothing but these capital riot, uh, this capital riot investigation because there's just so many complaints they need to get through. So they're the ones um, seeing the initial complaints as they're coming in. They're signing off on whether or not they believe there's probable cause to arrest um, these defendants initially. And so they've already gone through more than 150 of these and then they're signing arrest warrants some search warrants um, things like that. But then once the cases are indicted, they will generally get assigned to a district judge. But um, because of the large number of these cases, I would expect that some of these might end up getting kicked back to the magistrate judges to, to see through. Um, it, it's a little unclear exactly how they're going to be processing all of these cases, whether they're going to they're going to try to um, almost do them in batches or something. But this is there, there's just a, a huge number of cases and, and it still remains to be seen exactly how they're gonna play through the, the one courthouse. The chief judge in the DC federal courts is Beryl Howell. Is there anything we should know about her and what her specific role will be in these proceedings? So she has definitely taken a, a pretty hard line with some of these defendants. Um, I, I believe she is a former uh, Hill staffer at one point. She, she took what happened very seriously and has um, in certain instances overruled local judges in um, ordering some of these defendants detained. And so um, she is very, uh, so she's taking these very seriously. She's assigned these mag three magistrate judges to focus on this and um, seems to sort of be uh, putting as many resources as it requires 
to try to get all of these cases processed uh, pretty quickly. You mentioned hearings by Zoom. How is COVID-19 impacting all of this work? Yeah, that's that's obviously another major factor in just how, how these cases are getting processed. And um, the almost none of these hearings are happening in person. They're happening via Zoom with for the defendants and the judges and the lawyers involved. And then the, the public can call in on a telephone line to hear what's happening. But there's already been a, a lot of hiccups with how this happens. And um, in some of the hearings that I've called into, they've had sort of family members of the defendants calling in on Zoom. And then you hear the judges keep saying like, no, get off this line. You have to call in on the public line. And then defendants who, who don't haven't used Zoom before, so aren't sure how to turn their camera on or turn it off. and. So at least um, in these some of these initial hearings, you end up like having a, a lot of time devoted to just dealing with the te technology um, involved and uh, trying to get everyone uh, on the same page. We have about six minutes left and still some big topics to cover. One of those is the impeachment. Um, you've written that defense lawyers say they expect their clients to argue that they weren't taking clues from militia groups, therefore not conspiracy, but that President Trump was the instigator. I'm wondering how the impeachment proceedings might play into this type of defense strategy. So that is definitely an argument that we're seeing uh, some defense lawyers making uh, in in some of these cases. I think it, I, I think it's more pro because of the way these cases are going to play out over many months and um, in, impeachment proceedings are happening, you know, within a matter of weeks that I think it's almost what happens in impeachment might end up affecting how these cases, if how successful that defense is going forward, um, just given that these have not had a, these cases have not had a chance to play out really um, in any uh, significant detail in the court system yet. In addition to all of the criminal investigations, you've uh, reported that there are internal investigations going on at the Justice Department, Homeland Security Department, Defense, and Interior. Uh, are all of these investigations going to be ultimately linked? And what kinds of questions are they asking? So these inspector general reviews are trying to examine um, essentially why agencies weren't better prepared to handle um, what had happened on January 6th and didn't obviously didn't anticipate it as uh, that it would turn into the the kind of violent riot that it did. And that is um, something that they are trying to do in a way that doesn't um, it, it, that doesn't interfere with the ongoing criminal investigation into the actual defendants. So I suspect that that is going to take that review is going to take some time and we may not actually see any answers any major answers to those questions for um, many months now. We probably won't see a report for a, a year and a half maybe. Um, but Congress is also conducting several reviews um, in, into what happened. And so I expect uh, maybe over the course of many months, we'll see more information kind of coming out. So as you're seeing these various reactions um, that uh, to what happened on January 6th all play out, where do you see all of this leading? You mentioned on, with regards to the criminal investigations, a concern about First Amendment rights of a speech and assembly uh, versus uh, when it moves into criminal behavior. How is the Justice Department sorting all that out as they proceed? So in this case, because they're kind of more explicitly focused on the violence that was committed um, in Capitol Hill on January 6th, they aren't going to face as many issues with the, the First Amendment um, protected activity specifically in those cases. Um, 
the evidence is sort of on camera that these people were in the Capitol. The ones who were charged with assaulting officers are on video, essentially pushing, punching, um, spraying officers with bear spray. So those cases, I think, will ultimately be on relatively solid ground. As the months progress, investigators have said that they will also be looking at um, other aspects of like who may have motivated some of these rioters, um, whether anyone might be held responsible for inciting the rioters or anything like that. And when uh, it's not clear yet if we're going to see cases along those lines or not, but if they start looking at those cases, those are ones that would definitely raise more First Amendment uh, questions because people can say what they want to say. And if they didn't actually engage in the violence, um, they have a, a pretty strong First Amendment defense. Do you expect that someone will be charged explicitly with the murder of Officer Sicknick? So that is one we are still trying to sort out. In the initial reports in the days after the riot, um, we had been told that he had been hit in the head with a uh, with an object and it was sort of blunt force trauma. But in the days since then, we've heard that may not have been right. It may have been inhalation of some substance uh, that triggered something. Um, and so that is one that we are um, trying to report out and we don't really have clarity on exactly what happened there. And um, our understanding is that none of the cases that have been filed sort of allude to his death yet in, in some way. So we don't have the, even the um, medical examiner's report yet. So we don't actually know um, exactly how he, he died. And uh, so I think that is one we're gonna be um, still sort of sorting out in the, in the weeks and months ahead. Well, this, as you've told us from the outset and the Justice Department has confirmed, is a widespread investigation uh, that will take many routes over many months. But thank you very much for explaining how it will proceed uh, both within the uh, Justice Department and also at the federal court level. I might invite our viewers to find your reporting at the Wall Street Journal and uh, your Twitter feed also keeps people up to date with what you're covering. Thanks for spending time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In our next half hour, we'll talk with Max Abrams, a professor at Northeastern University who specializes in studying domestic and international terrorism and the government's response to it. He urges a cautionary note. Max Abrams, political scientist at Northeastern University whose research focuses on political violence and author of the book Rules for Rebels, published in 2018, which explores why militant groups behave as they do. You wrote a piece for Reason magazine this month titled Don't Give Domestic Extremists the Post-9-11 Treatment. Well, what's your main argument in that piece? My argument is that political violence is dangerous and worrisome but so too can be government responses. And that in the immediate aftermath of a attack, uh, a terrorist attack or whatever you wanna call it, an insurgent attack, a guerrilla attack, uh, there's a natural temptation um, by citizenry, by the media and by the government to really want to crush 
um, the entire political movement and that we need to be smart about how we um, act against these extremists and indeed who we define as extremists. Because if we just let our emotions dictate our response, we run the risk not only of infringing on our constitution and acting you know, contrary to our morals and norms, but actually fanning the very extremist threat that we're trying to counter. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is I'm kind of, I want to stand back and I want to bring to bear some research on this topic so that we don't make the same kinds of mistakes that we did against Al-Qaeda in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Because there are quite a few people who are drawing explicit comparisons between the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center towers. And so I think that we need to step back and be smart and not just emotional. Well, emotions are certainly high on Capitol Hill, and I wanted to play a clip from both sides of the aisle and representing both houses. This Dick Durbin uh, on the uh, January 8th, just after the attacks, and Fred Upton, January 28th, on both of them with the idea of introducing domestic terrorism acts. Let's listen in. After the attack on our Capitol, I hope that the Congress can finally come together and do something to address this threat. We have a bill prepared, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act. I introduced it in Congress, uh, into the Senate, along with Congressman Brad Schneider of Illinois, to combat the threat of violent white supremacy and other domestic terrorism. Our bill would establish offices to combat domestic terrorism at the Department of Justice, FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security. It re would require these offices to regularly assess the domestic terrorism threat. Would this also extend to better intelligence, better monitoring, having a better pre-warning system so uh, the officials aren't as, as so surprised or as surprised as they appeared to be uh, on January 6th? I'd like to think that this is going to help our law enforcement folks uh, have a better early morning system uh, and really makes it a priority for them uh, to try and identify when these acts, uh, in fact, might take place. Max Abrams, what are proponents of domestic terrorism legislation seeking that it doesn't currently exist under U.S. laws? You know, it's not entirely clear um, what is going to come out of this. There is a sense that uh, domestic extremism gets a pass, that it's easier to prosecute somebody, say, for international terrorism than for uh, domestic terrorism, and that the statutes need to be adjusted in order to strengthen our position against domestic extremists, which is correctly being identified as growing um, in terms of its threat, including relative to the international variety that Americans are more accustomed to fighting. Um, but how exactly this is going to shake down, what additional you know, statutes are going to be put on the books, what additional powers government is going to have, what sort of sacrifices uh, American citizens will make, um, I honestly can't answer that question. And that's one of my concerns. 
In our other half hour, we're going to be learning more from uh, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal who's covering the Justice Department and the, the federal response to the investigation and charges. And its numbers in the hundreds will extend over months and is involving U.S. attorneys, the FBI, the Justice Department, and of course the uh, federal courts. So when you look at the size and scope of what is happening under existing law, what does that argue for? Well, again, I think that we really need to be um, careful about who exactly we identify as uh, the extremists. So, for example, to concretize this, on January 6th, I would say you had two kinds of people of great interest to the government. There are those who literally participated in the invasion of the Capitol. And there are those who probably showed up at the Capitol that day um, and they were cheering and they were um, participating, um, but in a nonviolent way. They may have shared the exact same political goals um, as the rioters, but they didn't actually um, use violence against the Capitol. Um, and that is an enormously important distinction that I hope the new, you know, domestic terrorism laws uh, will continue to um, acknowledge. I'm a big proponent that there are two kinds of extremism. The word extremism is bandied about all the time, and it's underspecified. It's over-aggregated, and we need to be very specific about what we mean by it. The way I see it is that there are tactical extremists. Those who, there are those who use extreme tactics, i.e. violence, especially against civilian targets. And there are those who hold um, extreme political preferences. Now, sometimes, of course, they converge. The people who invaded the Capitol, I assume most of them, um, also had extreme political preferences. But not everybody with extreme political preferences goes on to use violence. And indeed, the vast majority of, of, of people, not just on, on the far right, but in any kind of fringe movement, the vast majority of those, they hold similar political views, but they don't actually act on them. Um, and so what we need is for the government to continue to delineate between those two kinds of extremism. One of the main reasons why most people in extreme social movements do not move from being, uh, from holding extreme political preferences to the point where they're using extreme tactics is because they're afraid of the, of the consequences to themselves if they do. When most people think about non-state actors using violence, they think about the dangers to the target of the violence. But it's actually quite dangerous to the perpetrators as well. Because typically, when somebody starts using violence, especially against innocent people or the government, the government really focuses on them and, and, and punishes them severely. And so there's a severe disincentive for political extremists to also become violent extremists. However, if the government is going to treat even just 
political extremists as if they're violent, then there's no disincentive for those people to to use to also use violence. And what the government really needs to do is it needs to try to prevent people from moving from the political extremist camp into the uh, tactical extremism. It needs to find a way in order to accept people on the right without pushing them into the far right. And I'm not actually sure that that's the zeitgeist that the United States is going right now in the aftermath of the January 6th attack, where people seem to be getting elevated and crediting for, um, they're basically outbidding each other for increasingly extreme behaviors and responses against the right. And, And I think that we need to pay attention to that threat and not just the threat coming from the far right itself. In uh, pursuing uh, legal remedies to the 1-6 attacks, uh, we're seeing some charges uh, that are beginning to be filed or talked about, such as conspiracy, prior planning among groups, and also sedition. So uh, would you talk a little bit about the concept of sedition and how that plays into the arguments that you're making? Well, what I will say is that, you know, I'm a terrorism expert, and when I study uh, terror, you know, terrorism, the, the, the lion's share of attacks around the world are actually committed in illiberal countries. Um, so, so terrorism is not evenly distributed throughout the world. The vast majority of it takes place in authoritarian countries uh, with very, very strong governments or other really messed up countries that are essentially failed states where there's an absence of governance. Um, Countries, of course, like uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Nigeria, uh, Yemen, the Sinai, uh, places like this. Um, And what I often notice is that the leaders of those countries um, do not um, have this strong distinction between political extremists and tactical extremists. They basically regard all sorts of dissonance um, as, what's the word that you used? Sedition. Sedition, um, they're treasonous, you know, they're traitors. This is exactly the kind of language that you will see illiberal governments use against their populations. Um, And so, I'm not saying that the relationship is uh, 100% uh, causal, where authority, you know, you know, governments use that language and it increases um, the amount of terrorism. Uh, I think that there's some reverse causality too, where the, a large amount of terrorism also causes governments to be um, to crack down more on their population. So the causal arrow goes in both directions, but nonetheless. Um, it is worrisome to me that, uh, you know, the government is looking around for, you know, sedition and, and, and treason. Um, and what we really need to be careful of is that the government doesn't start trying to assume the role of the thought police. Um, and the same is true, not just of government, but also of, uh, you know, the media, legacy media, um, and also big tech. Um, and I'm seeing a movement um, in, a, in, in a dangerous direction, for example, uh, in terms of the movement uh, to 
deplatform people on the far right. And some of these people are not themselves actually tactically extreme. They might just hold uh, political preferences which are anathema uh, to most Americans and frankly, anathema to me as well. Um, but yeah, this language of sedition and treason, this is the kind of, of language that we hear in authoritarian countries. And that raises some alarm bells. So lots to follow up on there. Let me go back to the point when you acknowledged early on that the, the threat is in fact rising in the United States. When in your studies, what do you understand about the size and scope of the um, political extremism, both left and right in the United States, its, its causes, and how serious a security threat it poses? Sure, I think that historically, uh, people tended to study terrorism in uh, waves, where the waves were uh, delineated from each other in terms of sequential historical periods of ideologically like types of terrorism. So there was like the anarchist wave, or there was the new left wave, or there was the so-called, you know, religious wave, uh, you know, with the Iranian revolution. Um, but what we're seeing now is a mixture um, of many different kinds of waves, if you will, many different um, terrorist varieties, where it's no longer acceptable just to focus on the jihadist variety. Uh, you can't just focus on the left variety or the right variety. I think that all of these different kinds of terrorism are actually interacting with each other. And so it's misleading to focus on any one of them. For example, I actually do think that part of what the far right is responding to, not just in the United States, but um, in Europe, for example, um, is the jihadist variety of terrorism, or what do you, whatever you want to call it, extreme Islamist uh, terrorism, the, the kind of um, terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda um, and their various affiliates. I think that, that the far right has grown um, partly in response to that threat. And I also think that there's been extremism on the far left in response to the far right. The Antifa tends to come out in response to, you know, the Proud Boys, for example. Um, and so all of these kinds of extremism are feeding off of each other. Um, that said, I do think it's possible to, um, to note that, that they're not all the same and they're not all growing at the same rates. Right now, the focus is more on far-right extremism, and I believe that that's fair. Um, we've seen uh, a number of mass casualty attacks. For example, the, uh, the El Paso attack uh, in Texas uh, at that Walmart, for example. Um, we've seen uh, the attack in the Pittsburgh area uh, on the synagogue. Um, we saw the, the attack uh, internationally uh, in New Zealand in, in a Christchurch. Um, so, uh, so this kind of extremism is growing at a time when it seems as if the, the jihadist variety is shrinking. The caliphate um, has imploded. ISIS, although not dead, is a shadow of itself. 
Uh, Al-Qaeda is still very much around, but it's not perpetrating the kinds of mass casualty attacks that we saw on 9-11. It's more sort of uh, localized threats. Um, and so, so yeah, uh, the right is growing relative to um, those other kinds of extremism, although they are all, in a way, interrelated. Well, uh, related to this, one of your tweets was, the crazies in America are being depicted as way more widespread than they actually are, which is a conspiracy theory in its own right. So is the, uh, the numbers of the people that we're talking about who pose a security threat to society much more limited than the concern level is right now? I think that there are very much objective concerns from a purely security perspective about the far right. I also think that those who oppose not just the far right, but those who oppose the right, those who oppose conservatives, those who oppose the Republican Party, um, are trying to, frankly, uh, exaggerate the numbers of extremists on the far right in order to justify um, domestic crackdowns that will be politically self-serving for those on the left. So for example, if you want to learn, if you want to hear about QAnon, which is a very wacky and dangerous and crazy and extreme element of the right, even the far right, but if you want to hear about them, don't go to uh, right-leaning media. You know, don't go to Fox News, for example. Go to um, media that's more sympathetic to the left. Go to CNN. Go to MSNBC. They are constantly running stories about QAnon. Why? Because it's a way to um, show that those on the right are crazy and that they're dangerous and that they should be marginalized and that uh, that the government should act against them. So whereas those on the right might have a bias for um, minimizing uh, the numbers on the far, far right, those on the left have an interest in exaggerating it. And viewers need to, to understand that. Um, you know, I know a lot of people and I don't believe that I know anybody well um, who supports QAnon. You know, they don't believe in like pizza parlor conspiracy theories that the, the end of times and that, um, you know, that Trump was going to overturn a cabal of, of pedophiles. But if you tune into CNN and MSNBC, you, you might get the impression that that's actually a very mainstream view on the right. But ask yourself, how many people on the right do you know who hold those views? You have written that uh, terrorists th thrive on grievances and that uh, grievance reduction can be a tactic in counterterrorism. How would it work with uh, as widespread uh, ideologies as you've just described of people who have grievances? Well, in the immediate aftermath of the January 6th attack on the Capitol, uh, you heard a lot of terrorism commentators say that this attack was going to have a big recruitment effect um, on the far right, and that they that the far right regards this as a big success, and that what the government must therefore do is crack down on um, the right, um, and yet 
I have a different understanding of the far right and its relationship to grievances. Uh, if you look back to the most important and notorious and evil uh, person on the far right uh, who used political violence in the United States, Timothy McVeigh, he committed the attack on the Alfred P. Murrah building in the mid 1990s, in, in 1995, um, because um, he was trying to avenge essentially government crackdowns against the right. He explicitly cited the historical episodes of Waco uh, and Ruby Ridge, which is very, very common on the right. And so it was actually government abuses of the right, which uh, seems to have inspired him to kill 168 people in Oklahoma City. And actually, again, the commentary was wrong because in the immediate aftermath of that attack on the Alfred P. Murrah building, support for the far right, particularly militia groups, uh, patriot groups, the kinds of groups that, uh, that McVeigh mingled in, support for those groups went down. Their membership actually went down. Um, and so we need to understand that very often political violence can be counterproductive. Very often it erodes their own supporters. And what we need to worry about for counterterrorism purposes is actually um, government overreach. And so a possible grievance which is emerging is that the government is going to overreact to January 6th, and that, not the attack by the rioters or the terrorists, whatever you want to call it, themselves, but actually the government response is what's going to grow the membership size. We are in the process of creating more grievances on the right, which is, go which is only going to increase um, you know, support for them. We have about five minutes left with you. Uh, I'd like to follow up on your comment about the inappropriateness of deplatforming on social media. Why is that not effective? Well, the way a lot of people think about this is they look at uh, political parties, which may be very extreme, or they look at militant groups, um, which may be very extreme, and they think to themselves, well, those at the very top of the political party or the militant group, they must be extra extreme. They must be extra bad. And so if only we can get rid of them, then that is going to have a moderating effect on the political party or the militant group. Um, I saw uh, some commentators directly, explicitly make this analogy that uh, deplatforming Donald Trump, for example, from Twitter would be akin to removing the leader of a terrorist group, which presumably will have a moderating effect on the right in America, just as it has a moderating effect on terrorist groups. The problem with that is that uh, my research looks exactly at this issue um, in terms of when we take out the leader of a militant group, what is the effect on that group in terms of its levels of extremeness? And what my research shows is that 
perhaps counterintuitively, in the immediate aftermath of a successful, what we call leadership decapitation, you know, the removal of a leader, whether it's arresting him or killing him or presumably even deplatforming him, uh, the group tends to become more extreme. And by extreme, I want to be clear about how I operationalize this study empirically. What I'm able to demonstrate is that the group is more likely within the, the weeks after the leadership is taken out, uh, the group is more likely to commit terrorism, to uh, attack lethally civilian targets. Um, and the reason why is because, and this may surprise people, the leaders of these extreme groups often tend to be more moderate than their replacements. Uh, you know, we, we do similar things in foreign policy, too, where we look at governments which seem evil, they, and, and, and oftentimes they are, and then we're so interested in removing them that we don't stop to consider, well, who exactly is, you know, will be the replacement? Because possibly, and often, you know, very often, the replacement is even more extreme. Um, and so the leaders of these groups are often more judicious and prudent in using, you know, against using violence than their subordinates are. Um, we see the same sort of things in, in other um, studies within criminology on gangs. When the leader of a gang is taken out, the, the nature of that gang's behavior tends to change in the immediate aftermath. It's much more likely to be less restrained rather than directing its violence just against other gangs in sort of a, a more disciplined fashion. Uh, the gang is more likely to shoot up civilian targets. Interestingly, we see the same thing with African elephants. It turns out that when the bull elephant is removed from the herd, elephants are more likely to lash out in indiscriminate rampages. And so when I warn about deplatforming on the right, I'm not saying that I'm sympathetic to the people being deplatformed. What I'm saying is that in all likelihood, based on my research, uh, their replacements are going to be even more extreme. As we close here, could you give me a 20, 30 second assessment of where, having raised these concerns, where you see this debate going in our country over the next six months to a year? You know, for a long time, uh, whenever the topic of terrorism came up, uh, people would focus, I think wrongly, um, on the Islamist variety. And people pointed out that there is a double standard um, and that we're not using the term terrorist, for example, when the individual is white or, you know, or Jewish or, 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 or Christian. And so what developed was this movement, which may have been born out of good intentions, um, but which is worrisome, which is this idea that we somehow need to bring the, the war on terrorism, which was hatched after 9-11, home, and that we need to basically repeat the same sort of crackdown um, against uh, jihadists, uh, against domestic extremists, especially on the right. And what I would like to remind viewers is that our post 9-11 response 
was actually disastrous. Uh, we ended up going into Iraq uh, in the name of counterterrorism to root out Al-Qaeda. And what happened? The exact opposite. Al-Qaeda's fiercest affiliate, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, sprouted up there, and it would ultimately metastasize into uh, ISIS. Uh, we fought in Syria by supporting the rebels, and it turned out that they were tinged with Al-Qaeda and laced with Al-Qaeda. And then the strongest Al-Qaeda affiliate in the world, again, in the name of counterterrorism, ended up setting shop in Western Syria in the province of Idlib. Uh, you know, after 9-11, uh, as part of the Arab Spring, we took out Gaddafi, and that ended up, you know, sprouting extremism and civil war and helping al-Qaeda in, in the Sahel region. Uh, and so we need to be really uh, careful about how we respond to domestic extremism, and we shouldn't certainly view 9-11 as something for us to emulate, given how counterproductive it was against al-Qaeda. Max Abrams, who studies political violence and terrorism, its causes and response by governments, whose latest book is Rules for Rebels. Thank you so much for giving an interview to C-SPAN. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with questions, comments, or your ideas. Your feedback is most welcome.